I would very much like for you to take your Bible and turn it to Genesis chapter 22, please. Genesis chapter 22 uh, contains one of the most famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, stories in all of the Bible, a story in which a father and a son go, but they don't really know where they're going. I want to talk about that today because to us, information is extremely critical in our culture. In our world, the right information is not only important, it's demanded. Uh, Companies do business based upon the information that's at their disposal. Companies are successful or unsuccessful based upon the information that's at their disposal. If you are a salesperson and you have information on your client, you are more likely to close the deal. Politicians give speeches on television based upon the latest polling information that is available. Wars today are fought using up-to-date information. Churches even get, on the, get in on the act. Uh, churches hire uh, research teams to study the demographic makeup of their community so that the church thereby can better know its target. We demand to know in our culture. It is a profitable business Information means everything to us. I read two weeks ago that you could take all of the books in the average community library and put them on a computer chip no bigger than my fingernail. That blows me away. All of that information and the speed with which we can retrieve that information has become big business in America. Why? Because we demand to know. Not knowing frustrates us. In fact, in my estimation, the most frustrating thing about the last two years and COVID-19 is what we do not know. Not knowing gets under our skin. It bothers us. We're used to knowing or at least convincing ourselves that we know. But when it comes to certain things in our bodies, in the environment, even in our government, we simply cannot know. Everyone in this church probably knows someone, if you haven't had it yourself, who's faced COVID-19. But all of us have mountains of anecdotal evidence that contradicts what the talking heads in government say. I had to stop using my favorite weather app because I just got tired of checking the weather and the first thing they showed me were new COVID cases in the state of Georgia. I don't want to know that kind of information. I'd like to know other information that I can't seem to retrieve. Nobody wants to make an uninformed decision. Everybody feels safer when they've got a lot of information at their disposal. Well, listen, church, there is a statement that repeats itself over and over and over again in the life of every follower of Jesus Christ on many different levels. There is a statement that repeats itself over and over again in the life of every person who is serious about God's headship in their life, that statement rings throughout the pages of this book, from Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning to the end. That statement appears in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes it comes across loud and clear, forcefully and strong, and sometimes it's barely perceptible. The Apostle Paul made that statement as he looked his friends in the eye 
and prepared to say goodbye and get on a ship and travel out into the Mediterranean Sea under stormy skies, grown men wept on the beach as Paul looked at them and in in Acts chapter 20, verse 22 said, and now compelled by God's Holy Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Now think about the absurdity of that statement in our popular culture today. No one wants to go somewhere not knowing what's going to happen to them there. And yet that's exactly what Paul said. I'm leaving because I believe God wants me to leave. I'm going because I think God wants me to go, but I don't know how things are going to turn out. I told you last time, there is probably no more relevant subject that we could ever consider on a regular basis than that of faith. When we talk about your desire and your effort to try and follow after God, we call it in this church a, quote, faith walk, because that's what it is. Faith bubbles to the surface of our lives on many different levels. There is perhaps no more practical subject to address than that of faith. So that's why for the next few weeks, I just wanted to examine the faith of our fathers. What did men like Abraham and David Moses and Noah, what did they know about God that maybe we don't? Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that one day you will lead the emancipation of your people like Moses did, or that we're all going to start building a 450-foot boat in our backyard. But faith today is every bit as important as it ever could have been from those individuals in your Old Testament. That's why Paul said, I am about to leave. I am going Because God wants me to go, but I don't know how it's going to turn out. To go and not know. In some ways, that is exactly what following Jesus Christ is all about. Sometimes God says, hey, let's go. Let's go. But that's all we know. We know nothing beyond that. His leading in our lives seems unmistakably clear to us. 30 years ago, I was certain that God wanted us to begin a church in this community unlike any church I had ever been a part of. I was certain of it, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how long it would take. I didn't know how difficult it would be. None of my schooling, zero of my schooling covered church planting. I'd never read a book on the subject, but deep in my heart, I knew it. Some of you are in circumstances just like that today where you sit. Something in the back of your mind is saying, why don't you talk to someone? You know, why don't you pursue a marriage counselor? Talk to Pastor Mike. Talk to Tyler. Let them connect you with someone who can help you. But in, your, in the front of your mind, you're thinking, but I've never been to a marriage counselor. I've never been to a counselor of any kind. You think you need to go. You might even know you need to go, but you don't know how it's going to turn out. You've been wrestling lately because we've talked a lot about building a building and paying for it, and let's be sure we we give and we support this church so we can further God's work and build the kingdom. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, we've never lived on a budget in my house. Maybe we need to sit down. Maybe we need to kind of put some structure to our finances. Maybe we need to embrace a prioritized percentage of 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 our income and give it to God's work as an act of obedient worship. Maybe you've received a diagnosis and something in you is saying, go, go, fight this. You can do this. Conversely, something in you might be saying, no, don't. Maybe you've been challenged to take on a new position, more responsibility at 
work. Maybe even make a geographical move and start a new career. Maybe someone has challenged you to take on a ministry role at this church. Maybe in the back of your mind, there's this little voice saying, come on, let's go. Let's make an attempt to dismantle some of those unhealthy thought patterns. Let's change the way we perceive and interpret our lives. Maybe, maybe in the back of your mind, there's this little voice that's saying, come on, let's go. Let's throw away the status quo and let's plow some new ground. We will go and not always know for the simple reason that God Almighty has whispered in our ear, hey, come on, it's time. Let's go. So let me ask you a question. In what area is God saying, let's go? In what area of your life is God saying, hey, it's time, let's go? Now, this could involve a place, geography. It could involve a physical location. Had a conversation with a lady in our church not too long ago. She's been praying about a move, a kind of a shift in her career and a move to a different location. And she's praying about that because in her mind, something is telling her it's time to go. It could involve a position. You could take a step up on the ladder, so the world sees it, the ladder of success, or sometimes even more importantly, you might even step down because something in the back of your mind is saying, let's go. Maybe it involves your, your plans or your, your dreams. Maybe it's time to take action. Maybe it just involves your perspective, the way that you perceive your current position in life. Do you realize that doing the right thing usually means going and not knowing? Did you know that? Whenever we wrestle with doing the right thing, generally part of that equation is going and not knowing. You see, that's what change is. Change is going and not knowing. You already know the status quo. You've written a book on the status quo for the last 15 years of your life. You know all about how things have been and are, but when it comes to what you think you must do, this is all you got. A little post-it note, <laughs> a Bible verse somebody shared with you, something that came across your devotional reading, something you saw on television, and God seemed to say, hey, psst, let's go. If this truth of God's word is accurate, that sometimes God says, come on, let's go, I've got something for you then I'll tell you another truth that's accurate. And that means we need to hold on to some of our possessions very loosely. Because if there are going to be times when God's word says, hey, let's go, then we have to be willing to embrace another difficult truth. There are things in life that we should hold loosely. The very same things that the world tells us to hold on to with white knuckle effort may be the very same things that God is asking you to let loose of. You don't have to go very far in this church before you talk to people who've lost everything. A fire can take away everything you hold dear in a matter of minutes. A storm can tear up something that's taken years to build in a matter of hours. We lose people. We lose positions. We lose possessions. We lose business opportunities that that looked strong at one point, but then fizzled out. I had a conversation probably six months ago with a man in our church in his 40s. Now, in his 40s, you've pretty well established your career. You kind of know where you're headed. 
But because of downsizing in his company, it's as if he's starting all over. The Bible teaches that we should hold these things very, very loosely. Even our plans and dreams, which is incredibly countercultural. All of us know of unrealized dreams because all of us live with unrealized dreams because not all dreams come true. Plans fade. Ideas can fizzle. And then there's people and relationships. We all know the sting of losing someone we love, either through death or through divorce or through relocation. So now follow my logic here. If there are going to be times when God insists it's time to go, then it only stands to reason that we ought to hold on to these things much more loosely than we tend to do. And if that's the case, then there are really only two responses. Either, number one, we can refuse to get involved. We'll call that apathy. If I'm going to have to turn loose to some of these things, I'm just not going to get too vested in them. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone tell me, well, my plan is just to not get my hopes up. I'm just not going to get my hopes up because if I don't get my hopes up and then it doesn't work out, I won't be let down. Yes, you will. You'll still be let down. (laughs) I'm just not going to get my hopes up because if it doesn't work out, I I don't want it to hurt too badly. It's going to hurt anyway. So if I know that there are times God will ask me to go and I'm going to have to turn loose of something or several things, I need to hold them loosely. I can just refuse to get involved. Or what I'm trying to convince you of today, I can choose to go and not know. That's called obedience. Now, we don't talk about obedience in the church the way we once did. When I was a child, obedience was a very big deal in church. Today, it seems obedience is just for puppy dogs and maybe your three-year-old, if that. But obedience is critical to the God experience in this book. When you choose to go and not know, it's all about obedience, which basically is all about faith. That's the key. You see, when you aren't afraid to go because you don't know, but you're unwilling to even take any kind of step in that direction, you cost yourself a potential encounter with God and all of the blessing that comes as the result. I want to go and not know. I want to be willing and obedient to do what Abraham does in Genesis chapter 22. It's like a 12-year-old on the golf course. You ever watch a 12-year-old who faces a 25-foot putt? 50-somethings, we get all nervous and our hands begin to tingle. And we get tense in our forearms and we think about how difficult this putt's going to be to make birdie. 12-year-olds don't do that. They step up, they look at the hole... And they make the putt. And more often than not, the putt goes in because they're not filled with that tension. What if you could live like that? I'm talking about successful businessmen and women in this church. I'm talking about educated, academically minded, positive influencers in our community. What if as full-grown adults, we could live like that? Here's the big idea. Here's the big idea. I put it in the program. I'll put it on the screen. Faith is trusting that God will do for me what he knows I most need done. That's what faith is. Faith is not believing hard enough. Faith, as the video demonstrated, is not believing in something that's not true. Faith is trusting. Big difference between trust and belief. 
trusting that God will do for me what I, he knows I most need done. Look, if that statement is true, and it is, I hope to show it to you today, that's reason enough to be willing to go and not know. If it really is true that God will do for me what he knows I most need done, that is reason in itself to be willing to go and not know. Throughout Abraham's life, God tested him. He tested his obedience. He tested his faith, just like he tests ours. And every one of those tests piled upon one another until he reached the culmination of all the testing in Genesis chapter 22. Let me show you something. I want to read part of this. Follow me. This is a great, great story from your Old Testament. Genesis 22, verse 1. Here's what Moses writes. Moses writes, sometimes later, God tested Abraham. Now, wait, I don't want to go any further before I ask this question. Why does God test any of us? I mean, God is omniscient. He already knows how this is going to turn out. God already knew what Abraham was capable of. He already knew what Abraham would do. So why test anyone? Because the test is not for God. The test was for Abraham. And the test is for us. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. Remember that response. It's going to appear again. And I'll say more about it then. Then God said to him, verse 2, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Now, do you know the story of Abraham and Sarah? God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that he would be the father of a great nation, that he and his wife Sarah would have a son. Now, oh, by the way, when God made that statement, do you know how old Abraham was? 75 years old. Hubba hubba. Right? Can you imagine a 75-year-old getting a message from God? You're about to father a child. I knew it. I knew it. But the problem was, you know how old Sarah was? 65. 65. And to make it worse, she was barren. She had never been able to have children. So here are two geriatrics in their golden age, and God makes a promise to them. You're going to give birth to a son, and that son is going to be in the line of a race which will bless all people around the world. That's Isaac. Keep reading. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. Wait just a second. First of all, do you know where Moriah is? Basically, Jerusalem. So think about this. I want you to see this timeline in your mind. 2,000 years before Jesus would hang on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem, in that very spot, God is asking Abraham, the first of the Jews, through the line in which Jesus would come, to sacrifice his son. And oh, by the way, a thousand years after God asked Abraham to do this, that's exactly where Solomon would build the temple of worship and sacrifice would be a regular occurrence. Go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I'll show you. Now look, we read something like this in our day and age and it's almost offensive. 
It's almost so ridiculous and so far out of bounds that we want to easily dismiss this. But remember, we're talking about something over 4,000 years ago. When according to all the pagan worship practices that are that ancient, sacrifice was a regular thing. The sacrifice of not only animals, but of people. Did you know that the Philistines sacrificed their children to the god Molech in a flaming cauldron of iron? God is usually very countercultural in the Old Testament. He doesn't want his people to do the same things that the pagans were doing. In this case, it sounds like he wants him to do exactly what the pagans were doing. But wait, we're not finished. Watch. Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and headed and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God told him about. The insinuation from the text is there was no hesitation. He simply obeyed. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. Now watch this last phrase. We will worship. That means that Abraham saw obedience as worship, and it is for you and me too. You see... You don't have to sing songs to worship. You don't have to read scripture to worship. According to this book, any time you set your mind on obeying your heavenly father, that's worship. We will worship and then watch. We will come back to you. I believe that Abraham knew he was being tested. I think Abraham knew this was a test. Just like when bad things happen to us or when things get difficult for us, or when our circumstances change beyond our control, and we feel as if God must be testing us, God must be testing our faith, that's what's happening here. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. You see, Abraham knew, and I'll say more about this in a minute, that God had promised him a son, and through that son would come the messianic line, and the one who eventually would bless the entire earth. He knew that God had to do one of two things. Either God could raise his son from the ashes and resurrect Isaac, or God would provide a substitutionary sacrifice. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. That demonstrates that Isaac was old enough, probably in his late teens, to carry a big pile of wood. Okay, That means that Isaac could have fought off his father if he wanted to. Remember, his dad's like in his hundreds here, okay? Watch. He placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up to his father and said, Abraham, uh, to his father Abraham, and said, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. Well, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And a giant lump must have settled in Abraham's throat. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. Now, follow me here. Please don't don't miss this connection. God himself will provide the lamb. Knowing that God will give me exactly what I need, what he knows I most need when I need it, that's what enables us to go and not know, to face the difficulty And not surrender. To stand up in the fire and not be burned. 
I don't know why we get so bent out of shape when we watch television news. I don't know why we talk about that stuff so often in our community. Because God knows exactly what we need when we need it. God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they had reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is incredible to me. Abraham's going through with this crazy idea. The Bible teaches in Hebrews chapter 11, it's because Abraham was standing on the promises of God. Abraham had the word of God that his son couldn't die. Keep reading. He bound his son, laid him on the altar, verse 10. Then he reached out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven. Do you know what that phrase means? Do you know who that is? That's Jesus. You see, whenever you see that phrase written that specific way, the angel of the Lord, not an angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to Mary, and an angel of the Lord appeared to Gabriel. I mean, appeared to Joseph. But the angel of the capital L, lower caps, O-R-D, that's Jesus Christ. That's Jehovah God of the Old Testament. That's the second person in the Trinity. Again, don't miss the symbolism. The angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, is about to provide a substitute for Abraham's son, Isaac so that he would not die. 2,000 years after this event, Jesus himself would become the once and for all substitute sacrifice for our sin. That's what John chapter 3 and verse 16 is all about. That's how merciful our God is. Spare Abraham's son, but I won't spare my son. Keep reading. He called out from the heavens, Abraham, Abraham. Here's that same response again. Here I am. Same thing he said earlier. By the way, same thing he said in chapter 12 when God originally called Abraham. His response was, here I am, meaning not just present, not just here. I'm here. I'm stumbling my way through life. I'm, 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 I'm present. I'm here. I'm not really interested in what's going on, but I'm here. That's not how it reads. It's not only am I present, it's I'm available. Here I am. I'm ready to volunteer. Perhaps that's one of the reasons God chose him. Here I am, he replied, verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. Well, wait a minute. We've already established God is omniscient. God already knew that Abraham feared God. So why make this statement? Because it helps us distinguish the difference between simple belief and true faith. You can tell me you believe all day long, but until you obey your faith does not materialize. Do you see the difference? Oh, I can tell you, I can reassure you of what I believe until the cows come home. I can wax eloquent as to how strongly I believe. But until I get around to obeying, even sacrificing, my faith doesn't materialize. Now I know that you fear God because you've not withheld from me your son your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead 
of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. Literally, present future tense, the Lord is providing and will keep on providing. There's a name for God in your Old Testament. It's Jehovah Jireh. This is where it comes from. The Lord will provide. He named the place the Lord will provide. And, on, and to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham chose to obey God's command. And from that story, with the little bit of time I have left, let me just point out three reasons his faith was so strong. Number one, it was demonstrated by immediate action. Whatever faith Abraham had, he acted on it immediately. That's a requirement for true biblical faith. I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from verses 3 and 4. Early the next morning, the text reads, he gathered his provisions. He got ready for the journey, and he set out. There was no hesitation. There was no bargaining with God. He didn't seek further clarification like we so often do. He didn't play a Gideon and have some sort of game with God. He didn't argue. He didn't doubt. He simply obeyed. That kind of obedience is very often misunderstood. Can you imagine the conversation that Abraham had to have with Sarah? If he did it all. If he was smart, he just kept it to himself. It got up before she got up and off they went. Guarantee you that conversation wouldn't go very well. But think about this. Why do we so often refuse to act immediately? Well, 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 wait a minute. There's a lot of details involved in this. There's a lot you don't know, Pastor Mike. You don't know how complicated my situation really is. I mean, good grief. What's my boss going to say if I ask for another two days off? Abraham could have said the same thing. What are the neighbors going to think when they found out I took my son up on a mountain in obedience to God to make him a sacrifice? There were a lot of details to consider. How in the world can I just Obey God. How can I do it? Now look, don't misunderstand me. No one is trying to make you make a rash decision. I, I, I promise you, I am not trying to oversimplify your life or your circumstance. I'm not trying to take all the subtle nuance of your situation and cram it into one story in the Old Testament and say, look, it fits. I'm not saying that. However, just keep in mind, when you can't go because you don't know and you're unwilling to even take a step in that direction, unwilling to even act on something, you've just cost yourself that encounter with God. That's how important immediate action is. If you're wrestling with something right now, part of the action you could take is simply to talk to someone. Talk to someone. Open yourself up a little bit. Here's number two. I'm sorry, I've got to hurry. Unwavering obedience. Unwavering obedience comes from verses 5 through 8. After reading that passage, we understand a little bit about Abraham's reasoning. Abraham fully expected to come back with his son alive and well. That's why he said, we'll go over and worship, and then we will return. I referenced Hebrews 11. Here's how it reads. Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when, he had, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, wait a minute. We just read the story. He didn't go through with it, but it sounds like he did here. That's because to God, unwavering obedience is the same as a completed action. I've told you many times, God is far more interested in the process of your lives 
That's obedience. Then he is the product. The author goes on. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned or realized. Abraham did what he did because he had the promises of God to stand upon, and so do you. You see, this is what separates, again, faith from believing hard enough. True faith always involves obedience. True faith is always about God, not me. True faith is not about wanting something, therefore I believe hard enough when I pray that I may receive it. And then the third characteristic of his faith is a thorough commitment. Thorough commitment. Does everybody accept that conditional commitment is no commitment at all? The Bible says in verses 9 and 10, he went so far as to bind his hands, bind his feet, and lift the knife above his head. I mean, Abraham was going to see this thing through. That tells me that I can't quit. I can't, I can't decide today and then question it tomorrow. I can't, even when the circumstance takes a turn for the worst, I can't just throw up my hands and say, oh well, guess God wasn't saying, it's time to go. That's thorough commitment. You've got to see it through. Let me end with a question. What this all boils down to me is whether or not you believe God is capable of holding your life together. Let me just ask you, church, do you think God can keep it together? <laughs> When it comes to you, can he keep you together? Let me tell you about something that I learned about 15 years ago. The human body is incredible. Of all the scientific data and knowledge we hold regarding the human body, there's many times more that we still don't know. The Bible says that my body and your body was fearfully and wonderfully made. Those two words mean something to us, but in the original language, those are enormous words. Fearfully, there's awe in my body and your body. Wonderfully, that means magically made. Do you know what's holding your body together right now? A substance or a protein molecule called laminin. You ever heard of this? Laminin. Laminin is a tiny microscopic cell adhesion molecule that tells your cells in your body what they are, where they go, and what they're supposed to do. In other words, without laminin in your body, all of those molecules that make up your liver wouldn't stay together, wouldn't make your liver. That's what this protein molecule does. This protein molecule that I believe God designed because he is our creator, this protein molecule makes you who you are. It tells lung cells to be a lung. It tells heart cells to be a heart. It tells stomach cells to be a stomach. Now, what's fascinating about this to me and a little bit ironic is if you were to Google this this afternoon and look for the scientific diagram of laminin, this is what it would look like. That's super cool to me. Oh, look, I'm not standing here telling you that that diagram means that God exists. I'm not trying to convince you of that. I'm just telling you, look how cool that is. Do you think God knows what's best for you? Do you think he's capable of holding your life together? That's what's holding you together. 
according to science. In fact, if we had an electron microscope and we could take a picture of the actual cell, this is what it would look like. Now just tell me that's not cool. Just a little. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 17, you know what it says? It says, Jesus was before us, and he holds all things together. That's what the book says. He holds all things together. So when Abraham loaded up his son and carried him up to the mountain, in the back of his mind, while there was much he did not know, I'll tell you what he did know. God will do for me what he knows I most need done. And since God had already promised that through Isaac would come Jesus, God did what Abraham most needed done. If he did it for Abraham, he'll do it for you, and he'll do it for me. So why don't we trust him? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful to you for this story in the Old Testament. 4,000 years old, it's ancient, and yet incredibly relevant. God, I pray that we would trust you more. I pray that we would keep it much simpler than we tend to make it. Father, help us trust you to hold our life together, just like you hold our bodies together. Father, teach us to rest in the knowledge that you are going to do for us what you know we most need done. You did it for Abraham. You'll do it for us. Father, go with us now to our homes. Watch over us and keep us. May we honor you this week in obedience, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.